News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. As you've been hearing in the news, the Canadian government has confirmed four Canadians may be affected by the deadly building collapse near Miami. People from different families. And joining us now is Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent who is in Florida. Reggie, thanks so much for your time this morning. Good morning, Jill. What do we know so far about the Canadians that are unaccounted for or, or Canadians involved with this? So we know very little. Global Affairs uh, is being incredibly tight-lipped on uh, the information that they are putting out. All they are willing to say is that it is four Canadians that are affected, four Canadians that are unaccounted for in this collapse. They're from three different families, and it was two different uh, units inside the building that are impacted here. Uh, They are not making a connection between the two units. They're not giving any further details about who the Canadians might be. But uh, when we were speaking to the Consul General in Miami yesterday, who was here at the site in Surfside, she made a point of saying that one of the families that are impacted has contacted Global Affairs and they are trying to get down to Miami now. Obviously, uh, you know, it it is a time-sensitive matter. There's also COVID restrictions that need to be uh, dealt with. So it is, uh, it's a sensitive issue right now, but as far as the Canadians, there's very little information that Ottawa is giving to the public right now. What about information in general with you being there on the ground, finding out more about what happened and what crews are dealing with? Well, I mean, look, the, the, the pile of rubble that, uh, that stands where this, this collapsed tower was, um, it's massive. You can see uh, a trench that was dug through. They've put up a fence uh, around kind of the perimeter of, of, the, whole, or of, the, uh, of the mountain now uh, to try and keep the public back. And that's kind of taking a memorial that was in place and kind of keeping that out of the public reach as well. Uh, but it, it's, it, is, it, is, it, is an, it is an emotional uh, kind of sight to see. Uh, and the, the issue is here is they don't know why this building collapsed. We know there was a 2018 structural report uh, that uh, was uh, detailing a series of deficiencies uh, with the waterproofing surrounding the base of the building, around the pool, around one of the entrances of the building. And they said if it wasn't dealt with in the near future, uh, that there could be exponential damages to that. And here we are three uh, three years later, uh, and the building no longer exists. So there is kind of a push for information to why these structural deficiencies were not dealt with in a timely manner, given the fact that pictures exist of massive holes and chunks of concrete missing uh, in the base. So this is going to be kind of the crux of this investigation. And while we're talking about that and looking at the investigation and what it's going to try and figure out, uh, I understand as well that uh, crews are still working around the clock trying to find people who are still unaccounted for. Yeah, and that was a part of the reason that that trench was built. It's 20 meters deep. It's 125 feet long. And essentially, um, you know, I heard a good analogy about it this morning. It's like cutting into a, a several layer slice of cake where you can see each individual layer underneath. And what they were looking for were voids uh, in the damage, because if there's a void there, there's a potential and a possibility that there could be life. Uh, it, it is it is nearly impossible to see any kind of void. It is just a, a pile of debris. Uh, piled on top of each other uh, in repeated layers. Uh, And here we are now going into day five after this collapse. There have been no survivors pulled from, uh, from the rubble, you know, from within the first 24 hours of this happening. 
you know, they're still calling it a rescue. They're still trying to give families something to hold on to. But I mean, as these days go by, it becomes much more difficult for these families to hold out hope that loved ones are going to be rescued. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess we've seen miracles like this in other searches and other building collapses elsewhere before. But uh, I mean, it's got to be just so difficult, unimaginable for families who are there or who are waiting for any word on what's happening. Yeah, I mean, look, we are located right across the street from the Family Reunification Center, which is about nine or ten blocks from where uh, the actual collapse took place. And uh, on an almost hourly basis, you see crowds of people outside. You see them uh, emotionally embracing each other, and each hug seems to last longer uh, than the hug before that. Um, And they are waiting. They are frustrated with... uh, with emergency crews and officials who they say aren't giving them, you know, a timely update. But the emergency crews are saying, look, we can give you the information as we get it. Uh, but this is a tense moment. Each hour that goes by feels like a lifetime uh, for these families that are struggling to try and get any kind of information out of the officials. But again, this is a slow and a methodical search simply because it is a massive area that they are going through and there are such large pieces of debris that they have to be careful when they're moving it because it can impact the integrity of the mound that they're standing on to do the search. Do you have any sense on what information you might be getting today or what reporters will be getting today from officials as this search or this operation continues? Well, I mean, we're going to get an update uh, within the next two hours uh, from the mayor, from the governor, from uh, those that are taking part uh, in the rescue. Yesterday's update, when they provided one, they made a point of saying they had been able to identify four uh, more victims, but still 152 people remain unaccounted for. The death toll, however, still stands at nine, and that is the point uh, that they're trying to make. They're still trying to say that this is a recovery mission and that those 152 people potentially still could be uh, alive. But for the people that are waiting at the reunification center, for families around the U.S., for those families in Canada, uh, the more time goes by, it really becomes more difficult uh, to see how anything here could continue to be a rescue, especially when you see just the magnitude of destruction at that building. All right, Reggie, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us to bring us up to date on this. Appreciate it. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. He is in Florida. And as mentioned, Global Affairs Canada confirming at least four Canadians are currently unaccounted for after that building collapsed. Three different families affected by this tragedy. That's all that was really released in a statement from Global Affairs Canada. Canada sending condolences to family members and friends who lost loved ones in that building collapse in Surfside, Florida. Uh, We are expecting more information And as Reggie mentioned, they are still calling it a rescue operation, as many people are unaccounted for. The official death toll at this point, nine people. And Reggie mentioned this as well. A 2018 report found evidence of major structural damage to the concrete slab below the ground floor pool deck. It also found abundant cracking of the columns, the beams, the walls of the building's parking garage, and also found that waterproofing under the pool deck was improperly laid on a flat structure, and that prevented water from draining in that area. So pretty damning report. The cost estimate showed repairs across the entire building at that point would cost more than $9 million, most of that work being in the garage. The work had not been done when that building collapsed. So we will keep you up to date on that. And if there is any update as far as the four Canadians who are currently unaccounted for in that building collapse in Florida. This is Mornings with Simi. 
A little bit later on in the program, we'll talk more about the heat wave, the heat dome currently over Metro Vancouver, talking about tips to beat the heat, uh, different heat hacks that people have coming out with, some that work very well, others eh, still a little questionable. So we'll talk about that and take your suggestions on that coming up in the program as well. Right now, though, we are taking a look at a vigil that was held on Saturday night. It was for the Cowess's First Nation in Saskatchewan, a chance for people to come together. It was open to the public to come and remember, to reflect, to honour the lives lost at the former Maryvale Indian Residential School. Joining me now to talk a bit more about what happened at the vigil and what happens now as far as the investigation and finding out more about those unmarked burial sites is Heather Yorix-West, a Global National Alberta correspondent. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about the vigil? I know people gathered on Saturday evening. What was that like? Yeah, this was something that the Cowess's First Nation felt was important to uh, open up to the public. So uh, we had a lot of uh, people from surrounding uh, First Nations and also just surrounding uh, towns and and other communities uh, gather. About 150 people uh, came out to the, the burial site for... Um, an, an evening uh, of prayers and uh, ceremony and, and grieving just kind of collectively together. We heard from um, many residential school survivors, people that had attended the Maryvale Residential School, uh, you know, a lot of stories of just kind of horrific pain and and trauma uh, were shared. I mean, it was really striking to see that the families with a lot of um, young children, you know, wearing ribbon skirts and orange t-shirts and to think that, you know, some of these kids four, five years old, just a few generations ago, would, would have been, um, you know, picked up by the RCMP and taken to these residential schools. So I, I found that quite uh quite gripping. Uh, it was, you know, as you can understand, uh, quite an emotional night for everyone. But at the end of the night, speaking with a few of the attendees, they they really felt um, that it was such, just a, such an important opportunity to, to be together in, in their grief at this site. And I, you mentioned too that the public was invited because I think there there's there's kind of that that balancing act, for lack of a better phrase, and that people want to show support and want to be there, but also don't want to intrude and don't want to look as though you're overstepping or maybe taking part in something that that is more intimate or is 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 not something that's inviting all of the public. Yeah, yeah, and, and it is important to to note too that this this. Um, burial site. There were people from uh, Cowess's First Nation, but also a lot of surrounding communities uh, were buried there as well. And not everyone buried in the site was uh, were people that attended the residential school. So, you know, some families were coming out because they believed that they may have loved ones at this site as well. And then there were people that were just wanting to show support. But the Cowess's First Nation is, is asking for uh, privacy uh, again today. They actually are going to be continuing their um, their survey of the site. They just want to make sure that uh, no grave sites have, have been missed. And then they also have uh, another couple of days of, of solemn ceremony um, planned for, for the site as they kind of continue their, their healing process there. And you mentioned they've kind of been asking then for privacy today. Do we know anything more about how things are progressing as far as identifying who is in the graves and getting a better idea on exactly what we're talking about there? 
Yeah, I spoke with one of the Batten counselors about this yesterday, and he said that they do have, you know, some historical records. They do have some idea of, of some of the sites. There were grave sites, um, the markers on on a lot of these sites uh, up until about, I, th- I think it was the 60s when there was a dispute with the church and they were kind of torn down, well, they were torn down. So they do have some records, but they're also, um, uh, he said he was very hopeful that they will be able to get some additional records from from the church that operated the residential school there. It's something that is really necessary to ensure that all of the grave sites are identified and so that all of the families can have, you know, that, that, that closure to know where their loved ones uh, ended up. And it sounds like that is a more positive step, if you can call it that, in that there has been this dispute over documents. And you would think if documents exist, of all the things that are being done now, perhaps that could be the easiest one to remedy as far as handing documents over. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something that uh, First Nation communities have been calling for 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 some time. Now, we did hear from the um, the the uh, organization that that ran this uh, the, the, this particular residential school uh, late last week, and they said that they they are committed to releasing those documents, but that there is also some um, questions around. Uh, privacy laws that is sort of impeding that that release. So, I mean, there there is a lot of hope that it won't be long now until uh, the communities are able to get these documents that they have been asking for for quite some time. And Heather, I just wanted to ask you quickly as well, because I know, as you mentioned, you've been talking to some of the councillors and talking to people that gathered for the vigil. Do you get the sense as well that people in the Cowessis First Nation, people that, that are obviously, that, that knew about this, or that are saying this isn't a shock, what we've simply located what we knew was there, are people more open now to talking about what happened or trying to figure out what happens next? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I spoke with one. Um, she, she didn't attend the school. One, one person there. She didn't attend the school herself, but her her parents, grandparents did, and, and she she you know she really identifies herself as someone who's experienced intergenerational trauma related to the school. And, and she said, yeah, there's there's grief associated with this discovery, but there's also this tremendous sense of release because this is something that they've been talking about within the community. The elders have been talking about within the community for so long. And it's just, you know, it's a sense of validation that, that now everyone knows about it, that it is true. The truth is kind of out in the open. And that's, um, that's something that's kind of allowing people to, to, to find some, some comfort and and some healing and, and kind of move forward. All right. We'll leave it there for today. Uh, Heather Yorks West, thank you so much for your time and for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Thanks for being with us this morning. Not a huge surprise. BC Hydro has set another new record. It is for the highest summer peak hourly demand, the hour where customers use the most electricity. It happened last night, and that broke the record that had just been set on Saturday. Joining us now to talk more about this is Maura Scott, spokesperson with BC Hydro. Maura, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. When we talk about the record for the highest summer peak hourly demand, uh, saying that consumption reached 8,106 megawatts, what does that actually mean? Well, it means that people are using a lot of power. Like you said, we've seen a number of um, summer electricity use records fall over the past week. Um, As you already said, both 
Um, on Saturday and Sunday, we saw this happen. Um, the peak hourly demand was broken, and that's the hour during the day when customers use the most power. And we actually expect to see that happen again tonight as temperatures increase even further. And the real driver behind this is obviously people looking for ways to keep cool, whether it's cranking up the air conditioning or turning to multiple fans in their homes to try to cool down. And also during this time, refrigeration units have to work a lot harder to keep um, the contents cool inside, which obviously drives up demand even further. So if we talk about air conditioning, uh, some people are lucky enough, they do have central air in their homes or in their buildings. But I think a lot of people too, if you're even trying to purchase a portable air conditioner, they're sold out everywhere. What kind of an expense comes with, with operating the portable air conditioners and other things people can do to try and bring that cost down? Yeah, definitely. So portable air conditioners, unfortunately, are the most inefficient type of air conditioner. They use about 10 times more power than a central air conditioner and about twice as much as a window unit. Um, But there's a few things that people can do um, because we know that they're obviously increasing in popularity because they're easy to install. And and obviously, the cost for them is is less expensive than than a bigger central air unit. So one of the things is look for Energy Star. Um, they'll reduce your consumption by about 30 to 40 percent. Another thing is be mindful of what uh, temperature you set the uh, thermostat to, whether it's you know 23 to 25. Every degree you go lower is obviously going to cost you more money. So those would be the two real things that we'd recommend to people. So if somebody then has found a stock or a supply of them importance, it does make a big difference, it sounds like then, to, to get the Energy Star. Yeah, yeah, it will definitely save you quite a bit of money, about 30 to 40% on, on total cost. So so it's definitely worth it if you can find one. Uh, you mentioned running multiple fans as well. I know a lot of people are whatever fans they can get their hands on. Uh, what kind of a cost is that? And does that have, is there a difference as well if you're using, say, a stand-up, one of the pedestal stands or a desk fan or a different kind of fan there? Yeah, so fans are obviously a great option. They're super energy efficient. They won't cost you very much. For example, using like one stand-up fan over the course of the summer, so about three months, will only cost you uh, about $7. Ceiling fans are another great option. They use about one-tenth of the power of an air conditioner and they can really help to keep you cool. I think the one thing that's really important to remember when it comes to fans is fans are obviously meant to keep people cool, not rooms. So you really want to make sure that fan is directed on you because that's how it's going to keep you colder. Uh, And it's such a a different thing because we're dealing with such high temperatures right now and and temperatures that stay high during the night. Because I think in Metro Vancouver, we're so used to putting that fan in front of an open window or an open doorway, maybe even especially at night when it cools down. But if it's not cooling down, I'm guessing that's not going to help you out at all. Yeah, exactly. It's not going to help you out at all. That's why you really want to have it pointing on your body. Another thing that we notice that happens during these times is people tend to keep all their windows open. But obviously, once the temperature gets hotter outside than it is inside, having those windows open really isn't going to help you. So you want to make sure that you try to keep them closed to, you know, seal in whatever cold air you have left in your home. And what about blinds or blackout drapes, uh, the kind of thing that kind of keep that sunlight off your home as well? Yeah, blinds are a huge help. So even just uh, shutting your blinds can actually reduce the heat in your home by up to 65%. So it makes a really big difference. What about the the draw of electricity as well? On On the one hand, we know people need to stay cool and it can be dangerous to be in those really high temperatures. But what about hydro crews? And is there an issue then with that drain on power and putting crews that then have to go and work in this heat? 
Yeah, so, you know, we're really fortunate here in BC. Um, you were probably paying attention to what was happening in the states last week when they were going through their intense heat wave. There were threats of rolling blackouts in some states. Here we rely on this great clean uh, hydroelectric system um, that will continue to provide us with power. We have more than enough power to meet this demand. We're really lucky this year. Our reservoir levels are average, so we'll be able to carry right through the summer with no issues. Um, Yeah, and then, of course, when it comes to our employees, obviously we're taking um, extra precautions, and this heat is really, really obviously an inherently dangerous job to begin with, so we've implemented new safety protocols to keep them safe as well. So do people need to be concerned, though, if, if there is, if the draw on energy, like you said, we, we Saturday broke a record, Sunday night we broke Saturday's record, there's a good chance that's going to happen again today. Are there any concerns then of overwhelming the system? No, there shouldn't be any concerns. We're actually a winter peaking utility, so we do see our highest demand for power in the winter months. So even with the significant increase right now, we're still quite a bit lower than what we'd see in those winter months. So there is more than enough power to meet the demand. Uh, One other tip I wanted to mention as well, and I know a lot of people, the thought of even turning on the oven at this point is not on the table, that uh, they're finding other ways of of preparing food and certainly not adding to the heat inside their homes. What about things like a microwave or, or using those appliances? Does that have an impact? Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, the small, I mean, you're, you're completely right. So using the smaller appliances is obviously going to help you generate a lot less heat in your home, whether it's the microwave, the toaster oven, a crock pot. The other thing, too, is um, if you can, try to hang your clothes out to dry outside. I mean, obviously, not only will that save you energy and money, but it's also another way to not prevent uh, more heat from accumulating in your home. Yeah, running the, the dryer on a 39 degree day, probably if you, if you don't have to do that, probably a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I'm guessing to Hydro then, uh, BC Hydro uh, will be giving us more updates uh, and letting us know kind of where power usage is and where we are. Yeah, we'll definitely keep you posted. And like I said, we're expecting to see that record break again tonight. So obviously the temperature increases and people use more power. All right. Maura Scott, BC Hydro spokesperson. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So we'll take a break. I still want to hear from you. What are your ways of beating the heat? This is Mornings with Simi. Well, I know it is making people very happy thinking about a concert live in person at BC Place, even though it's not until October 2022. Still something to look forward to. And that whole feel-good phenomenon is something we're going to talk about now. It is apparently in full effect as Canadians look at different ways to spend. It doesn't have to be a ton of money, but spending to get through the pressures of the pandemic and finding things where we spend money and it makes us feel good. Well, Dr. Jillian Mandich is a scientist and also a happiness researcher joining us on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thank you so much for having me. I'm not surprised that people are looking at ways to to make them feel better or make life feel a little bit normal, even as it's getting back to that. But what are you seeing or what's been happening during this pandemic when it comes to spending and then feeling good, having that kind of mood boost? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm so happy that we're having this conversation because um, Interact recently just did a study um, with over a thousand Canadians looking specifically at uh, spending habits. And really, they commissioned a behavioral science experiment, which we're going to chat about, looking at sort of the intersection between shopping behaviors and emotions and our motivations for making purchases. And I think that using this data, especially now coming out the other side of the pandemic, is this opportunity to really look at 
How are Canadians spending their money? Does it relate to happiness? And if we are going to buy things and spend our money, then how can we do that to really maximize or bring around the most amount of happiness? Right, because I'm guessing there's there's kind of two sides to it. On the one hand, you could be spending money. If you're spending money, maybe you don't have, or it's something you really don't need. It could go the other way, and it's not going to be that happiness boost. Yeah, exactly. So one thing that was really interesting um, I found in the study was one of uh, the parts of the study that Interact looked at was feel-good purchases. And so these are purchases that, you know, obviously make us feel good, but they're non-essential purchases. And what they found, and we actually pulled some BC-specific data for you this morning. Nice. Um, but what, um, what we found was that over 6 in 10 Gen Z adults, so, and as well as millennials, they're more likely to make a feel-good purchase today than they were pre-pandemic. So when we think about when we're buying things to improve our mood, we're more likely to be doing that now than we were before the pandemic. And I think that's sort of really interesting. Not surprising, but interesting. <laughs> right, because, is, and is it because we're, we're being optimistic with vaccination rates and we're seeing things change and things return to some form of normal? You know, there, there was really such a multitude of reasons why. Um, but one of the things that was really very apparent from the data is that when we look at what we're spending, when we spend our money on passion-driven purchases, so things that we actually like and are passionate about and care about, we're more likely to get heightened levels of emotions like excitement or happiness or pride, no matter the price. And I think that's the key piece, too. You know, specifically when we look um, at in British Columbia, feel-good purchases, they're more likely to bring British Columbians an intense feeling of excitement. So 78% of um, British Columbians found that, as well as pride, no matter the price. So I think that's interesting, too, because sometimes we wonder, you know, if I spend more money, is that going to make me happier? But right. the key takeaway is it's not about the actual amount of dollars that you're spending. It's are you linking that with things that you're passionate about and that you care about? And what about if you're spending it on things rather than, say, experiences? Oh, I, I love this because, you know, just before I heard the commercial uh, for the Elton John concert. And what we find is that if we're looking about how can we spend our money when we buy experiences, as opposed to material goods, it's more likely to bring not only more happiness, but more lasting happiness. So we look at things like feel-good experiences, such as, you know, concerts like we talked about, or sporting events, or even travel as things start to open up, but really asking that question, what experiences can I buy? Um, Because that's going to bring more happiness than thinking about what material thing can I buy. Interesting. And you talked a bit about the the amount of money. Did it was it different than generation to generation on what a feel good purchase, what the cost would be, or what somebody I guess was comfortable spending? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we look specifically, um, we are seeing some of the younger generations like Gen Z and millennials. They're more likely to be making these feel good purchases than they were um, pre pandemic, and they're outpacing. Um, for example, the baby boomers that were at you know 35% or the silent generation that were at 22%. So we are seeing that heightened spending in sort of those younger generations. And did you look at how people are feeling when they're specifically doing the purchasing and that do we tend to purchase also when we're feeling happier, feeling more confident, or is it the other side of things that we're feeling like we need something, we're feeling like we're missing something, so that's when we want to purchase? You know, it's so fascinating because, you know, when we look at emotions, they're very complicated. But what we found was that feel-good purchases, they bring us complex layers of emotions. And in the study in particular, they found that if we spend more than $50 of our own money on a feel-good purchase, we're nearly three times as likely to be nervous 
about that purchase as opposed to if we spent a lower amount. So 74% nerves when we spend a higher amount versus 26 when it's a lower amount. So it's not even just about, you know, looking at it, but how are we feeling and how much is that impacting us? And yet at the end of the day, when no matter what amount we're spending, when we link it again to what we're passionate about, that's when we can really bring about um, the most amount of happiness when we're making that feel good purchase. And I, we kind of touched on this, but there's got to be a, a limit at one point or there's got to be a, at some point where someone stops and realizes, OK, maybe I've been overspending. Uh, maybe I don't actually need this. And, and there must be that point for some people, maybe not everybody, where <laughs> these objects or experiences aren't what's bringing them and making them happy. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, some, when we look at our behaviors, one of the things, you know, as a researcher, I'll look at the why. What, why is it that we're doing what we're doing? What is the reason or the motive behind it? And so, you know, asking ourselves those questions, you know, am I feeling sad today? Am I feeling anxious today? And is that why I'm purchasing things? And one thing I found uh, that was really interesting was that, you know, as Canadians, we think that if we're feeling, um, we're feeling down or sad or blue or happy, we may be inclined to spend different amounts of time based on our mood but we didn't see that in the study so whether we're feeling down or feeling happy the spending patterns seem to be consistent um, across the board across the mood and you mentioned the generations and the difference between the generations Mm -hmm. did you notice or did this survey look at perhaps say differences between men and women um so there we did account for gender when we were um looking at the at the total population across Canada. So we accounted for things like gender and age and region with the 2016 census data. Um, But one of the things that we did look at was a different sort of personality types. And what we found was that introverts were more likely to report feeling happy about a gift as opposed to extroverts. So I thought that was kind of interesting looking at not... um, not gender specifically, but personality types, because, you know, different personalities may be inclined to purchase different things. Uh, For sure. Uh, One Mm -hmm. other thing, did you look at where people are purchasing, and this might go to the introverts, extroverts as well, are people doing this online, or is it the experience of going somewhere and purchasing something? So this particular study was looking at uh, debit users. So they were using debit um, to make their purchases. And um, so what was actually really cool about the study was they, they did simulated shopping experiences, as well as they had participants do diary entries. So they could not only track the purchases that were happening, but the emotions that were associated with them as they went through um, the behavioral science experiments. Interesting, interesting yeah. findings. Well, we'll have to leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us for talking more about that. Thank you so much for having me, Jill.